All right, so chapter 26, if you're using your green um, booklet, you'll have a separate page for that. It says WCF 26 across the top, Communion of Saints. So, chapter 26 from the Westminster Confession, you, if you want to read this, you'll find it in uh, the back pages of the hymnal. I'll give you the page number. 864, thank you. Section 1, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces, and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. So these truths of this first section are, are the foundation of the communion of saints, why we have fellowship with one another, and the fact that we have that union by union with uh, Christ Jesus. So all saints are united to the Lord Jesus, and by all of us being united to the same person, we are therefore consequently united to one another. We get this from such verses as Ephesians 1.4, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Notice we. So it's, it's us collectively Um, being in Christ and chosen that way from before the foundation of the world. So uh, as an overview of this chapter, the the whole chapter deals with, first, as I've said, the foundation and privilege of our communion, and then uh, we'll go into our corresponding responsibilities, and then the third section is correcting errors, denying things that people might falsely conclude from what we say in sections uh, one and two. So on this section, the first section, we have this communion with each other, the fellowship that we enjoy with each other as brothers and sisters in the family of God is built on our union with uh, Christ Jesus. So if you think of this way, our communion with Christ grows out of our union with him. Communion grows out of union. Then our union with each other grows out of our union and communion with Christ. And then our communion with each other grows out of our union with each other. And so therefore our obligation towards each other grows out of our communion with each other. So it's kind of building blocks there. So you could say it this way, subjectively, just looking at it like from our own perspective, subjectively, we're united to one another in love. But if you look at it from above or you know, objectively, we commune with each other in each other's gifts and graces. So what does that mean? For an individual believer who dwells within a community of believers, it means that your gifts and graces are expressed in your individual life because they flow from Jesus Christ and that therefore your gifts and graces don't belong to you alone. They belong to all of us. So our gifts, our spiritual gifts, belong to the whole body of Jesus Christ. Your, gifts, your spiritual gifts belong to me. My spiritual gifts belong to you. So in that sense, there's a real uh, unity in the body. And 
this flows nicely from the body metaphor. If you look at 1 Corinthians 12, Christ is the head, we are the body. Ephesians 4, same ideas. And so the recognition that whatever gifts and graces I have are not actually for me, but for Christ and his people, it propels me to realize, A, that I'm united, <clears throat> united to Christ and united to others, and then B, that it puts privileges and obligations on me to use those gifts. Um, so mutual love, um, mutual use of gifts are all found here in communion of saints. Uh, as I said on the handout, our love is mutual and our use of gifts is found together as Ephesians 4 um, spells out. It's an obligation, but it's a privilege. To love one another is the oil of the wheel of the body of life, body life of the people of God. So we move to section two, the responsibilities then. Saints by profession, what they mean there is because we profess Christ and own him, we publicly identify with Christ by our um, status, our disposition, by saying that we're Christians and belong to him and belong to his church. Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. Which communion, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So you see how they kind of build in there the local expression of the body of Christ as, as a church like ours here. But inherent in that also is the connection with the wider body of the universal, not universal, we'll get to that later, but the worldwide living uh, church of Christ. So the responsibility on each of us is to build up other Christians. Notice they use this beautiful phrase, mutual edification. What I do would build you up, what you do would build me up, and um, back and forth with each other. So we desire that each person be built up, uh, all fellow believers, not only those in our local church, but also to any anywhere who call in the name of the Lord. So if we get a visitor, uh, if we ourselves travel, if we send missionaries and who are they supposed to contact, if we're sport, supporting a church plant in another city, church plant in another state, whatever our national ministries, international ministries are, we are supporting that because uh, they bless believers and reach out to unbelievers. So then the third section, denials. If, if you take what was said so far, you could go in a wrong direction, so they try to guard against that. Here's section three. This communion which the saints have with Christ doth not make them in any wise partakers of the substance of his Godhead. You don't become God, right? Or to be equal with Christ in any respect, either of which to affirm is impious and blasphemous. Nor doth their communion one with another as saints take away or infringe the title or propriety with which each man hath in his goods and possessions. So in other words, you're not made equal with God, if you could somehow conclude that from sections 1 and 2, it's now debunked, it's denied. The communion of saints also doesn't take away rights to personal goods and possessions. Oh, so we're one with each other, huh? I need your car this weekend, <laughs> right? The, the false assumption is that what's yours is mine, so I'll take it now. Uh, false ideas like that can be um, stated in, in churches. How does a church keep from becoming a cult? 
along these lines, to be clear about what the Bible says and what it doesn't say, um, we're not robbed of personal use of our property. If you want to donate it, great. If you don't want to donate it, great. It's your decision because it belongs to you. So life in the community of saints need not be literally life in a commune. That's not what's being said. So radical groups regard a certain form of community and community of goods or communism in the like classic sense of the word communism, the way that we would live together in a group setting, in a commune. <clears throat> People who conclude that's the only way to be obedient to Scripture are not correct. And that's not what the Westminster authors are saying. That's not what our church holds to. So just a little caveat there. To say that another believer's goods or belongings must be given over is heresy. That cannot be a biblical statement. All right? That was section 26. So now um, 27, 28, and 29, we're basically passing over. We've, the whole idea was here to do a general introduction, an overview of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we believe we do quite a bit of teaching already on the sacraments. It would be worthwhile another day, but it's not possible in our overview. So we're going to section 30, chapter 30. Chapter 30 on basically church discipline. They use the word censures. You remember that a lot of this is... Um, 400-year-old language. You think, think um, King James Bible, right? 1611, and this was written in the 1640s. So they use the word censures. We just translate it to the church makes messes, the church cleans up its messes, right? Sin makes a mess. So there's four sections in this chapter, and they clarify and define the position of the Westminster authors and therefore the position of the OPC about what we call church discipline, or correcting sinners. And it sets the position of the Westminster authors, the OPC's position, off against a wrong view of the relationship between church and state. So, in short, I could summarize with a couple of brief statements. Number one, Christ is head. Number two, Christ appoints human leaders. Number three, Christ is the one who puts men into offices, pastors, elders, deacons. Number four, state and church offices and officers are distinct. Um, Number five, church officers have true authority. And number six, opening and closing the kingdom to people is part of what is in mind here. So let's uh, jump into it. Section one, the Lord Jesus, as king and head of his church, hath therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers distinct from the civil magistrate. In other words, distinct from the public government out in the world whether it be a local, county, city, or uh, um, state, or nation. So Christ appoints church officers, for example, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then um, miracles and gifts of healing, helping administration, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles are all prophets, and so on. The, the key phrase is that first statement. God has appointed in the church. And same thing in Ephesians 4, uh, 11. Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So this is not our idea. It, it comes from God to have offices in the church. He also appointed that there will be civil magistrates. Isn't Christ over who won the election, right? Isn't Christ always over every nation, whether it's a prime minister, president? Each person who is a congressman, senator, 
they are all in office under God's perfect sovereignty, right? We believe that. So what this chapter helps us to do is to, to rectify or to square what Christ is over in terms of the public government and what Christ is over in terms of the church and the church leaders. Public leaders and church leaders are both under Christ, but they're distinct. So because we believe that Christ is over things doesn't mean that we should conflate or confuse the church leadership with the public leadership. So that's the introductory. And then um, what is the power to correct sinners in section 2? To these officers, the, the church leaders, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed by virtue whereof they have power respectively to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, people who won't repent, both by the word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel, and by absolution from censures, as occasion shall require. So the assumption in this section is that sin between people in the church would be brought to the church body through its leadership, so that there's problems and sins that happen. Church is full of sinners, right? So sins happen, problems crop up, and it's assumed that those would be brought to the leadership of the church. In Matthew 18, we get the classic passage regarding this. Matthew 18, 17, if he, the the sinner in question, he or she, refuses to listen to them, the the two or three brothers that confronted the sinner, from verse 16, the prior verse, if they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Does that mean you hold a full congregational meeting and and air the dirty laundry of a certain person? Um, That's... We're not what we believe happens in Presbyterian government. So how do, you, how do you interpret that phrase, tell it to the church? You tell it to the church through its leaders. Like, how, how would I sue the state of Wisconsin? Do I gather all six million residents of Wisconsin and announce to them personally that I'm suing you? You do it through its leaders. And so when we say tell it to the church, you tell it to the church through proper channels and leaders. That's how we understand it. Or, for example, in John 20, verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them, but if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What does that mean? It means that on earth there's rendering judgments with regard to a person's wrongdoing and how the church as a group is going to respond to that person, respond to that scene, respond to those instances. Forgiveness is granted and say, hey, this is over and done. We welcome our brother or sister. Or, this is not over, and we have a big problem with our brother and sister, and they still aren't turning from it, so you need to know that. So these things go on. That's part of what censures and the keys of the kingdom means. So church leaders, um, it was predicted by the uh, prophet Isaiah to be on the shoulders of Christ Jesus. Think of this when you go through Christmas. Isaiah 9, 6, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and what? The government shall be upon his shoulder. What does that mean? It means that Christ is the chief government of his church, the body. It's on his shoulders. The buck stops with Christ all throughout his church. And so he maintains that through his headship, and he does that through human leaders in the church. So it's the revealed further, you know, that's an Old Testament prophecy, fulfilled in the New Testament through Christ's life and then through the apostolic writings, we gather all of the Presbyterian government that we hold to. For example, Ephesians 2.20, we read, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the part of the foundation of the government of the church, the way the church is run, how it's led, is by apostles and prophets. Well, the apostles all died, but we have the apostolic writings. And the prophets died. We still have, in a sense, prophetic ministry anytime we, any of us teach, but yet it's uh, codified into the New Testament. So Christ is always the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets build on Christ or around Christ, and they consist of the rest of the foundation of the church. So the personal authority of the disciples, this is where we differ from the Catholic Church. The personal authority of the apostles was not delegated to successors of the apostles, but rather the authority of the apostles was transferred from the persons of the apostles into the written word of God, the New Testament. So that's a significant difference between the Protestant church and, and the Catholic church. In other words, you could say it this way, and you think in government language. The constitution of the church is the New Testament. Um, the permanent and only supreme authority in the church is the scriptures. So we have people who are ministers who declare, minister and declare the word of God, but I don't hold any authority in and of myself. It's ministerial. It's declarative. I'm simply saying what God says in his word anytime I minister. So take, for example, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. Uh, I'll just read part of it. It was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, and so on. So the apostles knew that they were equipping the church for what the church needs. I'm sorry, the prophets. The prophets knew that they were equipping the church with what the church would need later, and then the apostles interpret that and write it down in the books of the New Testament. So the authority of Christ in the church is seen in the administration of this authority then by elders. Um, Acts 16.4, as they, this was referring to Paul and Silas, traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Um, 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul wrote to Timothy about administering that authority of Christ in the church. Um, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor and so on. And Acts 20, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God and so on. The apostles saw themselves as fellow elders with the ruling elders who are non-apostles. For example, 1 Peter 5 Verse 1, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, writes Peter. Um, yeah, I probably should be moving on. Let me just mention the, the chart on your handout, the hierarchical, congregational, and Presbyterian form. The hierarchical has to do with gradations of power and leadership, authority, for example, the Roman Catholic Church has what we call a hierarchical form. It means that the, the lowest level they have members, then deacons, then priests, then bishops, then archbishops, then cardinals, then the pope. That whole gradation is what we call hierarchical. That There's a um, flowchart of authority, if you will. Other churches also have hierarchical forms, such as Methodist churches, Eastern Orthodox churches, and the Church of England, which we also now call the Anglican Church. That's hierarchical. Then if you look in the middle column, the congregational form, that's a little more rare. Congregationalist churches have this form. 
where the authority is seated in the whole congregation as it's gathered. So each particular church or each particular congregation holds to its own self as a separate congregation with its own authority, independent of groups or authorities outside of that church. If you think about it, where do you put Baptist churches? They're not hierarchical, and they're not Presbyterian, I would say. They are congregational, which means the pastor there has all the authority, and the only uh, way that they could override the pastor, perhaps, is to have a congregational meeting and uh, veto or override him. They have associations, Baptist associations with other churches, but there's no actual authority Uh, Whereas if you go to Presbyterian form, the ruling of the whole church is done by elders. Collectively, we call it plurality of leadership, not just the pastor. It's elders and pastors together. So a Presbyterian church is never ruled by the pastor alone. It's not ruled by the congregation. Rule and final decisions are done by the board of elders. It's a government that our church has and what's called the session. Now, there are Baptist churches that have elders, and so you could call them you know, Presbyterian in the local government, but they don't have a Presbyterian structure above them. And then there's also um, churches like, for example, the Christian Reformed Church has a Presbyterian form of government. Um, it's just not, they don't use the word Presbyterian in naming their denomination. So, yeah, um, there's three different ways of, of thinking of the government and the public and the government and the church. You could say it's state over church. You could say church over state, or you could say separate, church separated from the state. Um, so that's addressed here, at least hinted at. So we avoid two extremes. One is the extreme that Peter received absolute authority, and then he passed it down to the next person. The other extreme to avoid is that Peter received no authority at all. He did receive authority. Listen to Matthew 16. I tell you, this is words of Jesus, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So something was done there, and we believe what was done there is the constitution of the church, as it were, is embedded into the New Testament, And that's given to the apostles who pass it on then to each generation of ministers and elders to exercise the keys of the kingdom. So again, the Roman Catholic Church interprets that passage to say Peter had supreme authority. He passed it on to the next main leader in the church in each generation since then. Uh, However, we respond to the Catholic interpretation by observing in this passage Jesus did not say anything about successors of Peter. Um, There's no valid reason for Catholics to assume in this passage that Jesus means for this to be passed down beyond Peter himself. The authority of Christ given was resident in the keys of authority which Peter currently had. It was the power of the keys of authority, not the power of the man Peter. He was put in a position, and in that position and those Um, duties were passed on. The administration of the powers of the keys were passed on to the next generation as Peter passed away. Revelation 1.18, Christ said, I am the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Um, We still say Christ is head of the church, not Peter, and not successor of, of Peter. So others after Peter could administer the power of the same keys with the same results Peter would have. As he goes on to say in Matthew 18, 18, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
or what I read earlier, John 20, 23, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Again, Matthew 18, 18, whatever you bind on earth, whatever you loose on earth, there's a dissemination of power in the keys of the kingdom. So what are the keys? The word of God and church discipline. For example, Titus 3, verse 10, warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. That's authority. That's discipline. That's saying we can keep order in the church. And if somebody's disrupting things, we can take action. That's what it's saying. When discipline is administered according to the word of God, it's not mere exercise. It's not just going through the motions. It's a way that God has designed to protect his word going out. It can consistently through the generations be kept safe as a place for people to receive the word of God. An actual dispensing of the power of Christ from heaven by which the kingdom of heaven is actually closed to a sinner unless he or she repents. Here's how it works. Uh, It doesn't mean faithful preaching opens the door, faithful church discipline closes the door. Rather, when the gospel is faithfully preached, the preaching opens and the preaching closes the doors of the kingdom to an indifferent listener. They're held accountable for having heard the truth and rejected it, not listened. When church discipline is faithfully administered, it doesn't just close the door to an unrepentant, but opens the door to a repentant sinner. So the preaching of the word and the administration of church discipline are together, and they both open and they both close. So it's a serious mistake to think that the preaching and the discipline of the church have no power. They are the keys of the kingdom. And how does that work? So a lot more could be said on that. Why is church discipline necessary? Section 4 basically covers that. Yeah, because people are like wandering sheep. (laughs) That's why. Shepherding care is needed. In Matthew 18, 12 to 14, Jesus says the story about the 100 sheep. You leave the 99 to go after the 1. What is that? That's a wandering sheep. That's sin. So he ends that phrase, that paragraph, by saying, the Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should be lost. So wandering sheep but not desiring for them to be lost. Therefore, shepherding is needed. Or as Okay. That's my alarm for 10 o'clock. Man, I can talk. Okay. All right. I better stop there. Um, I did not get to sections um, 31 and um, 32 and 33. One small consolation. The message this morning is on the topic of chapter 33. So I guess we only missed chapters uh, 31 and uh, 32. And uh, you have them available to you to read. So what I'd like to do, as I set out at the beginning, I would like to do is go back to one more uh, chapter of the Confession that I skipped on purpose, chapter 25, because I wanted to end with this today, and then go to, in the last 10 minutes, oh, i got to set my lock clock for 10 more minutes, then I'll go to the last chapter of the Disciplines of a Godly Man book. Okay. Doctrine of the Church. So chapter 25, and it's in your green booklet under 25. It should say, we are part of something big across the top of your page. So section uh, one, the Catholicity of the Church, and we'll define what we mean. We don't mean Roman Catholic. Section two, the visibility of the church as compared to the invisibility. We'll explain. Uh, Section three, the ministry of the church. And section four, the history and purity of the church. Section section five, the permanence 
and section 6, the head, which we've already talked about today. So this chapter, chapter 25 of the Confession, expounds the doctrine of the church in terms of several dimensions of the church's existence. Visibility versus invisibility, purity, perpetuity, which means the continuous existence or permanence of it, and the function and ministry of it. So first, invisible versus invisible, if you think of those terms in terms of section 1. I'll read section 1. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So what they mean by invisible church is those that we can't necessarily see, but God can. Um, many uh, people who are believers, who will be with us in heaven, we can't see right now. My grandmother, example, Noah, Moses, Peter, right? Believers who will be with us in heaven, they're part of the church of Jesus Christ, but they're invisible to us. That's all it means. The universal church, those through generations past, those around the world today, they may not have their names on the rolls right now for various reasons, but if they're converted, they belong to Christ, they're part of his church, invisible church. Visible church is simply those seen by man, those who profess, those who have publicly joined a church, those whose names are on the rolls, the visible church. Now the problem is, sometimes you can have a name on the roll of a person who's not actually converted, not actually a believer. So they're in the visible church, but not in the invisible church. So you see the distinction becomes helpful as we talk through what does the church mean. So shorthand way of thinking of it, invisible church is from God's viewpoint, visible church is from our viewpoint, as far as we can tell. So, all right, moving on, section two, the... uh, uh, yeah, I've already been talking about that. Catholicity of the church, section one, and section two, basically visibility. So section three, uh, ministry of the church. Um, two dimensions, building up and um, building on. Building on is adding people, evangelism, missions, gathering of the saints. Building up is edifying or perfecting the saints. Uh yeah, so the, the gathering of the saints in this life to the end of the world is our mission of evangelism, but we also have a mission of uh, building up the church. If you think about the Great Commission, uh, the words of Jesus in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen to 20, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, says Christ. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things I commanded you. So it's not just evangelism. It's also teaching them to observe to obey. So edifying people, uh, working on purity and holiness in the saints is part of the initial foundational mission of the church. So it's both evangelizing the nations and edifying God's people. Both are part of our, our mission, ministry of the church. Um, history of the purity of the church. Here um, the authors apply corporately to the whole what they have expounded in chapter 14 individually about the faith of believers that the faith of an individual believer could be weak or strong, up and down like a roller coaster. And this, that the Catholic Church has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible, like the church worldwide. Um, there have been times where it was pretty dark, like the Middle Ages, where are the churches? 
whereas now we have a proliferation of churches, but are they pure? If a church that uh, ordains and stalls and has ministering to you a homosexual who's known and publicly in a homosexual relationship, we will have a debate about whether we can call that a church, right? And various other examples more... um, gray than that example, those sorts of things, right? The question is taken up here in section four. What about the purity of the church? Can you, can you um, call it a church? Um, some, I think, in Reformed circles debate whether you can call the Catholic church a true church, right? So that, that sort of thing. There are bound to be discrepancies between uh, worship and churches that are more or less pure. And there's different levels of obedience, different levels of faithfulness in congregations, denominations, and down through the decades, those change, and so we need a way to think through what level of purity ought there to be and is there, and is it still the church? Then uh, section six, that always there will be a true church of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be snuffed out on the world. There will be until Jesus comes. So we know if you haven't found one, then go ahead on your search because you can find it. It's, it's present in the world. That's what section six says. Um, and then um, section five says, and then section six, the head of the church, which we talked about earlier. Oh, uh, I wanted to conclude that by reading from, this is why I wanted to end with this chapter. This is uh, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of the OPC, Christianity and Liberalism. I wanted to read about the value of the church. All right, Um, good, we got time for this. So, and then I'll go back to the uh, Disciplines of the Godly Man book. Um, God has not deserted his church. He has brought her through even darker hours than those which try our courage now. Yet the darkest hour has always come before the dawn. We have today the entrance of paganism into the church in the name of Christianity. But in the second century, a similar battle was fought and won. From another point of view, modern liberalism is like the legalism of the Middle Ages with its dependence upon the merit of man. And another reformation in God's good time will come. But meanwhile, our souls are tried. We can only try to do our duty in humility and in soul reliance upon the Savior who bought us with his blood. The future is in God's hand, and we do not know the means that he will use in the accomplishment of his will. It may be that the present evangelical churches will face the facts and regain their integrity while yet there is time. If that solution is to be adopted, there is no time to lose, since the forces opposed to the gospel are now almost in control. It is possible that the existing churches may be given over altogether to naturalism, that men may then see that the fundamental needs of the soul are to be satisfied not inside, but outside of the existing churches, and that thus new Christian groups may be formed. But whatever solution there may be, one thing is clear, that there must be somewhere groups of redeemed men and women who can gather together humbly in the name of Christ to give thanks to him for his unspeakable gift and to worship the Father through him. Such groups alone can satisfy the needs of the soul. At the present time, there is one longing of the human heart which is often forgotten, is the deep, pathetic, sorry about that, pathetic, and by pathetic, he means um, something that we can feel. Longing of the Christian for fellowship with his brethren One hears much, it is true, about Christian union and harmony and cooperation. But the union that is meant is often a union with the world against the Lord, or at best a forced union of machinery and 
tyrannical committees. How different is the true unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Sometimes it is true the longing for Christian fellowship is satisfied. There are congregations, even in the present age of conflict, that are really gathered around the table of the crucified Lord. There are pastors that are pastors indeed. But such congregations in many cities are difficult to find. Weary with the conflicts of the world, one goes into the church to seek refreshments for the soul. And what does one find? I'm going to pause there. The reason I wanted to read this, we talked about fellowship, we talked about communion, we talked about what the church is. And I think we're living in a time where things are increasingly moral with regard to political matters. And so people more and more want the church to address uh, these matters, and we can address ethical and moral things, but we need to make sure we understand what the church is for and what we need when we find here. So that's why I wanted to read this. Okay. Alas, too often one finds only the turmoil of the world in the church. The preacher comes forward not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far into the background by the glory of the cross, but with human opinions about the social problems of the hour or easy solutions of the vast problem of sin, such as the sermon. And then perhaps the service is closed by one of those hymns breathing out the angry passions of 1861, which are to be found in the back part of the hymnals. <laughs> Thus the warfare of the world has entered even into the house of God. And sad indeed. Why is this going again? Oh, because I set my alarm again for um, 10 after. Whew. The warfare of the world has entered even into the house of God, and sad indeed is the heart of the man who has come seeking peace. Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross? If there be such a place, then that is the house of God, and that the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. So we've been studying doctrine, and uh, it it can get rather precise and kind of lose that um, human, emotional, and inspiring dynamic. So I wanted to end with that uh, quote there. All right, now back to one, one last item, and then we're done with this whole course. And the last item is chapter 19 from the Disciplines of a Godly Man book. So I just want to review the way that the author, um, Pastor Hughes, reviews his whole book in this final chapter. 1 Timothy 4.7 was the foundational verse that he built on for this. Train yourself for godliness. 1 Timothy 4.7, train yourself for godliness. So... Um, the word train there, he, he expounded for us the word discipline. We get the word discipline for the title in the chapter, uh, t- title of each of the chapters of the book. And the word discipline calls to mind two areas of spiritual hard work. One is to divest, or what we call put off, and the other is to invest or put on. So Ephesians 4, you could think of the language put off, put on, like taking off dirty clothes and putting on clean clothes to take off sin and put on righteousness. So Divestment is putting off associations, habits, and tendencies that hold you back in your spiritual growth. Investment is putting forth all energy and even sweat in the pursuit of godliness. So examples that he gave in the book are are around discipline. Examples from the world were um, 
ways that we accomplish anything in this life. Take the category of athletics. He used Michael Singletary. I know, I know, um, Chicago Bears. Um, but the example he gave was his, um, his discipline towards his craft. From literature, he picked Hemingway. From art, he talked about Michelangelo, Da Vinci, and Tidoretto. Public speaking, leading, he used the example of Churchill. And in music, uh, Paderowski. I summarized those earlier. Um, you can read up on them. But basically his conclusion now is that we need to have a response to this book. He's taught, he has presented 18 different disciplines. Um, they're essential to godly life. So each of the disciplines has about seven recommended action steps. That's totaling way over 100. How are you supposed to do 100 action steps in response to this class or in response to reading this book? 100 to-do things on your list. You already have a lot of things on your to-do list. We have to narrow it down. So he recommends a response to his own book. He says either A, you can do nothing, call it passivity. B, you can uh, reduce it to a manageable list that won't cost you much effort at all. That's called legalism. You just change the rules. C, you can compare yourself with others, find somebody who's doing worse than you and just feel better about yourself. It's called uh, judgmentalism. Or D, You can take the book seriously, working hard to please God because God's already pleased with you in Christ. So he recommends that. How would you do that? Number one, review the 18 disciplines in the book. That's why I've given you in the inside cover of your green sheet on the back of the cover, you'll find a little chart of all 18 listed. That's a convenient way to review the 18 disciplines. And then list where you're doing well and where you're not doing well, thus the columns. Am I doing okay or not okay in each of these? After you've completed column one, then um, number your worst ones, the ones that need the most work for you. Take three of them, one, two, or three. And then pick recommendations under those chapters from him under a selected area, making a specific list of your action steps. What are you going to do about these bad areas? where you need the most growth. After you've done that, then he asks you to step back again and to consider these new goals you're making for your growth and be realistic. Are these things really within my reach with God's help? It's better, he suggests, to increase slowly and as you succeed, then take on more rather than have too much at the start. He asks you to pray to literally pray and seek God's guidance with regard to these action steps you're committing to and ask a friend, maybe a spouse, to ask you about it periodically. How are you doing with your new sanctification project? And lastly, he asks us to remember grace. Uh, Failure is part of the path of success, and God understands, and he's not counting our failures against us so that we are to remember grace. And so that's how he ends the chapter. What do discipline and grace have to do with each other? Um, we've talked about discipline, 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 the discipline of a godly man. Disciplines in each of these 18 chapters. What does it have to do with grace? Um, we could say it's the discipline of grace, and we could reverse it in saying it's the grace of discipline. It's a gift from God in order that we might discipline ourselves. It's all from God. All of our discipline is a gift from his grace. An artist painted the Niagara Falls and didn't put a title into it, entered into a show. So the gallery gave it a name, More to Follow. That's grace. 
that was grace enough to get us here, and the picture is a raging river coming over the waterfall of more grace coming to us. That's understanding of grace. We're saved by grace. It's God's unmerited favor. Even the smallest percentage of works debase the saving grace. Don't get confused with a book about discipline to focus yourself on works, that your efforts. Romans 11.6, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's by grace alone. Living the Christian life is by grace alone. Do you need some? All that you need is offered by God. James 4, verse 6, he gives more grace. Our great God gives us grace to live our daily lives right here today in this fallen world. I got three more minutes. I'm doing great. Okay. There's always more grace. Listen to John 1, 16. And from his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. I'm going to put something on your mirror. Put that on your mirror. Grace upon grace. Grace heaped on grace. Author John Blanchard filled that out this way. For daily need, there's daily grace. For sudden need, there's sudden grace. For overwhelming need, there's overwhelming grace. The Christian life is a matter of grace from beginning to end. Don't be confused because we studied a book about discipline. It's grace, grace, grace. And there's enough to last. The grace of discipline is no contradiction with the hard work that we've been studying. 1 Corinthians 15.10, listen carefully. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 1 Corinthians 15.10. That's worth noting. That's worth thinking through. And again, back to the central verse. Train yourself for godliness. 1 Timothy 4.7b. That's a grace item, or we say it another way, James 4, 6 again, that he gives grace more and more. That's what I wanted to end on.